<laughs> Who is it um, kindly gave me a battery? Thank you. That's, that's a different one. That's a new one. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. Okay, what I'm going to do is pick up some of the, um, the questions that you raised about the various hermeneutical approaches and say a bit about those approaches. Um, and uh, if we get to the end, if I get to the end of those, then I'll come back to some of your other final questions. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll uh, go down the interpretations in the order in which they come. I'll start off with the hermeneutics of the Pentateuch one. And, uh, and see what questions, comments you'd got. Um, so, uh, the first one is the Christological. Um, and, well, I'm sure somebody said something about that. Now I can't see it. So, um, oh, well, some, yes, okay. Uh, the Christological interpretation means looking at the scriptures uh, to discover things about Christ. Um, and you can see how, at least to some extent, when you're looking at the prophets talking about the Messiah, that's not so much a bigger, but that's not not such a big jump. But it's a bigger jump with regard to the Pentateuch because it doesn't have uh, prophecies of the Messiah. Um, and the way in which uh, people more often are going to make links um, with uh, with Jesus is by means of a typological approach. Uh, and somebody uh, wanted to, me to talk some more about typological or allegorical approaches. Um, I understand there are some analogies used in Scripture, but these, but, these, but these fall apart at some point and may not point directly at one another. How can they be used appropriately? Uh, I'm not sure whether appropriate is the word I want to use. It's more something like, uh, in a way that's illuminating. Perhaps that's what appropriately means. Uh, what the New Testament guys uh, did was look back at the scriptures, the Old Testament, in order to help, their, get, help them get some understanding of what Christ was about. And sometimes, as it were, that was easy uh, because there were messianic prophecies. Um, but lots of other passages they find illuminating, which weren't originally designed to be messianic prophecies, but nevertheless turned out to be illuminating. Uh, and so, for instance, here, uh, or the, not just for instance, but the central example, here are the New Testament guys with um, a desire, a need, to come to, un to, un come to some understanding of how it could be that Christ dying could be uh, useful to them, could it be uh, for their benefit. Um, somehow it, it uh, has um, sorted, themselves, sorted them out with God, but how did it do that? And so they looked at the way in which uh, priests offered sacrifices, and they could see that that gave them a way of thinking about what Christ um, was doing. This is especially what Hebrews does uh, in the New Testament. So Christ wasn't literally a priest, and he didn't literally offer any sacrifice. And he himself wasn't offered as a sacrifice in a literal temple. But nevertheless, those um, concrete, real things in the Old Testament gave them pictures that helped them to understand Christ. And whether or not they, that way of approaching Scripture is appropriate um, depends upon whether or not it works. If it, if it gives you an aha moment, if it enables you, as it did enable them, to see, oh, now I can see how it was um, that Christ's death made a difference to me, if I look at it as rather like him offering himself as a sacrifice then I can see what was going on. Um, and uh, the typological then, the, typolo the typological approach involves taking things which were literal in the Old Testament and using them uh, to provide you with uh, pictures uh, of what Christ was about or what the church was about or whatever. Um, there's um, overlap then between the way that sacrifices work, uh, and the way that, and what Christ was doing. There's not identity, but there is overlap. Um, 
and you can only discern uh, where lies the overlap and, and where there are things that you can't transfer by doing it. Um, this isn't the kind of thing that you can prove in a logical, rational, mathematical way that it's right. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's whether you uh, reckon that you get some illumination there and whether you find that, that the rest of the Christian church is saying, oh yes, that's right, that does illuminate for us. Because if other people are, uh, having, uh, are saying that as well, there's, there's a bit more chance that this is something that the Holy Spirit is guiding you into um, than if it's just your weird idea. Um, which take, takes us back to that question about when you're going to disagree with your tradition. If it's, just you, if it's just you disagreeing with your tradition, it may be just you being weird. But if you talk, say that with some of the people, then there may be something in it. Um, just opposite uh, our house um, in South Orange Grove is what used to be the headquarters of the Worldwide Church of God. Um, and uh, the founder of the Worldwide Church of God um, died in, I think, about 1995, 1993, something like that. Um, and his uh, subordinates, his senior staff, after he died, uh, found themselves talking together uh, and agreeing that actually what he taught to be the nature of Christian faith was wrong. They went and read the New Testament and they realised, oh, actually, we've, we're, we're wrong. Now, now, I think it's significant that they did that together. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there, are a, there, there, are, there, there would have been occasions when individuals reckoned that that, was, that, that, um, uh, that, that church or sect, as it more or less was, uh, was wrong, but there was a different dynamic of when, of when the, about when the whole, the whole worldwide Church of God um, decided that the distinctive things that uh, made it stand actually were based on misinterpretations of Scripture and not proper interpretations of Scripture. And it wasn't something that happened just through one person on their own, but something that happened uh, with a crowd of people. Something similar, you could probably argue, was true at the Reformation. There were people like Luther and Calvin who had to stand up and be counted about something, uh, but if there'd only ever been them that was saying this is the right way to read scripture, then there'd have been no reformation. Uh, partly, it depended on other people uh, being able to say, "Yes, you're right. We can see that." Um, there was somebody else expressed, a couple of people I think expressed unease about the business of the. Uh, the nature of Old Testament prophecy and its relationship with Christ. Um, and now I can't see those questions now, but maybe I'll find them later on. But the the thing I'd want to the, the reason it, it, the reason why it doesn't trouble me that there are that there aren't any direct prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament is that it would trouble me if I thought that believing in Jesus was based uh, on the idea of Jesus fulfilling prophecies. Um, but, that, but, that, but that's to put the thing back to front. It works uh, the other way around. It's because the uh, disciples had come to believe in Jesus um, that they then came to look at the Old Testament to help them get some understanding on what Jesus was about. It's not that they had first of all formulated an understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Jesus came along, there were eight things the Messiah has got to do, you can tick them off one by one and therefore Jesus is the Messiah. It didn't work like that. Historically it didn't work like that. Um, and uh, it didn't work like that because there isn't a collection, um, there isn't a, an established profile of what a Messiah is supposed to be um, that, that Jesus needed to come to fulfil. Um, there were... Uh, there were Jews in Jesus' day who were looking for the Messiah, but uh, it was no more central a part of Jewish belief in Jesus' day than belief uh, in the second coming of Jesus is central now for us. It's something that um, Christians, as it were, in theory believe, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's not the centre of what Christian faith is about. Now, maybe it should be more central, but it isn't actually that central. Uh, and something similar would have been true in, in Jesus' day. It wasn't as if the entire Jewish community 
uh, was uh, on tiptoe looking for the Messiah with a list of the things the Messiah was going to do and Jesus came along and did it and then it's, everything would be hunky-dory. Well, it would have been, but obviously that isn't what happened um, and, and that isn't what happened because the um, presuppositions of that uh, weren't in place. That is, it wasn't that everybody was looking for the Messiah and it wasn't that there were a list of prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus was, um, was then uh, able to visibly to, uh, to be seen to fulfill. The, um, and when, Jesus, when John the Baptist sent uh, people to ask Jesus whether he really was the Messiah, Jesus didn't say to him, have you not looked up the following six passages and seen that this is what I did? He pointed to the kind of things he'd done, which weren't especially the kind of things that the Messiah was supposed to do. Um, and uh, so again, it was the reality of who Jesus was and what he did that uh, drew people to belief in, in him in the same way as I suggested is uh, for us. Uh, and it was then that they went back to look in the scriptures for, to, to get some understanding uh, of what being the Messiah meant. Uh, anybody want to come back at me on any of that so far? Hello? Yes. Uh, I completely agree with the idea of uh, interpretation being first based on faith in Christ. Uh, how is that different from folks who somehow uh, look at Scripture to uh, justify what you see in, say, uh, the reestablishing of uh, the state of Israel? Right, right. Right, right. Well, uh, the, I think there are, I think they're actually quite there are different sort of cases. Um, at least they probably are. Uh, if you that is, if you you first of all believe in Jesus, then you go back to the scriptures to help you understand what that means. You don't. It's not that you first of all believe in Jesus and then you go back to the scriptures to go that, back to the Old Testament to justify you believing in Jesus. Um, now, with believing in the re-establishment of the state of Israel, uh, it's not that you first of all believe in the re-establishment of the state of Israel. Uh, the parallel would have to be, you first of all believe in the re-establishment of the state of Israel, then you go back to the Old Testament to uh, help you understand what that means. That's not the dynamic of it. Uh, for some people, no doubt it is the case that believing in the re-establishment of the state of Israel comes first, and using the scriptures to justify it, that other way, does come second. Um, but uh, in, in that case, um, well, either, the question is, wh wh where lies the authority for believing in the thing that you're believing in? And what I'm suggesting is that when we come to believe in Christ, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not that we first of all read the Old Testament and then believe in Christ. It's that we first of all believe in Christ for some other sorts of reasons to do with who he was, and then we go and read the scriptures. Um, with, uh, with, the, with the belief in the reestablishment of the state of Israel, um, if you are, well, certain, certain kinds, not by, I mean, not, not by any means all, if you are certain kinds of um, Jews or Israelis, then you believe in the reestablishment of the state of Israel. But, uh, but, and you do then, or you may then, try to prove it on the basis of the Old Testament. But in that case, you are you're involved in what you might call an example of modern or to go on to the next one I was just, talk, just going to talk about, doctrinal understanding of the Old Testament. That is, you're, seeking, you're using it in order to prove something. But if you're using it in order to prove something, then you're going to have to submit to the kind of canons of what proof looks like um, that would satisfy us. Th that is, um, if you were trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, then you'd have to prove that, those passages about, that there are passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah, and you have a hardish time with that. But if you're not trying to prove it, then it, if you already know it on some other grounds, you're okay. If you're trying to prove uh, that the reestablishment of the state of Israel is the biblical thing, then you've got to be prepared to argue that on a basis of what the texts actually say. Um, and uh, I would then uh, want to uh, argue, but I'm, let's not get too bogged down in it now, um, that that while there uh, are texts uh, 
in the Old Testament. It's, it's part of the Old Testament's understanding um, that God has promised this land to this people uh, and, that they, um, and that God's promise implies they will be free to live there. Um, the way that the Old Testament itself talks doesn't mean that that promise uh, overrides willy-nilly the rights of the people who are already there. Um, so that uh, classically, uh, God's promise to Abraham uh, of the land is then uh, qualified by saying, but it's going to be some hundred years before your descendants have the land because um, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, says God in Genesis 15. That is, it wouldn't be fair to throw the Canaanites, the Amorites, out of the land at the moment because they've done nothing, to, nothing wrong to deserve it. Give them lots of rope and they will hang themselves, says God. Uh, but, it, but it needs a, quite a lot of rope, namely 400 years' worth. Uh, and, that, and then, they won't, as it were, they won't be able to complain if I take the land off them because then uh, it will be an act um, of judgment upon them. So there are moral questions about God and Israel and the land, as well as theological questions about God and Israel and the land. So in our present context, you'd have to put together the theological questions and the moral questions. Um, our problem is that certain sorts of people today only care about the moral question, and other sorts of people only care about the theological question. Um, that is, there are some people who are committed, and they're right, uh, to God's, God's own commitment to the Jewish people um, and, and to their being free to live in the land. So they jump immediately to, therefore, Israel has a right to the land and you mustn't give the Palestinians any, and so on. There are other sorts of people who say, it's wicked what the Israelis have done to the Palestinians. Um, there's there's no, no wrong in it at all. God isn't involved in that. The first group of people are, forgetting, are focusing on the theological questions, not bothering about the moral ones. The second sort of people uh, are only interested in the moral questions and forgetting the theological ones. The reason why we've got a problem, as it were, in biblical Christian faith terms, uh, as opposed to merely the political historical terms, is that both these two are important. The reason why God's got a problem is both these two are important. Because just because you're God, it doesn't solve all the problems. Um, God, God still, as that Genesis 15 passage indicates, has got to be able to work with both the theological and the moral question about the people's relationship um, to the land. Will that do? Um, what was that, that reminded me, what was the other thing that reminded me of? No, it's gone, never mind. Um, mm-hmm. Dwell. That's a great word. You don't really often use that word. You hear that word, do you? Dwell. That's a great word. Okay, let us dwell with it. No, because I just remember uh, your argument that, yes, uh, we believe in Jesus first for who he yeah. is before we acknowledge the authority of Scripture. But don't we point people to the Scripture? Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know yeah, thank you. Yeah. So yeah. are we not yeah. um, If we were... Uh, that might not be too bad a thing, um, because have you heard, some of you heard of J.I. Packer? Yeah, well, a million years ago, I used to go to his lectures when I was a seminary student. And for that matter, a million years ago, I used to go to lectures by Professor Colin Brown when I was a, a seminary student. <laughs> Actually, in the same place. They were both, they were both um, professors in the, sem in the seminary in Bristol, where I was. Uh, and um, I think it was, it was J.I. Packer who used to say, that there's nothing wrong with a circular argument as long as the circle is big enough. Now, I'm not sure I know what that means, but I think it's a really clever remark. <laughs> well, obviously I think that because it stayed with me for 45 years or whatever it is. Um, well, I think what it means is that uh, a lot of the time uh, the arguments about Christian faith are whether the total package deal of Christian faith or of any set of convictions um, is big enough to embrace um, everything that needs to be embraced. Um, can, it give a, can it give an account um, of, of enough? Um, and I think it's possible, uh, in fact, I think it is the case, uh, that you could give an account of Christian faith which includes um, taking your understanding of Jesus from the New Testament um, and uh, presupposing it, indeed that it is uh, the Word of God um, and, and, and getting your total package from that and saying, yeah, indeed, I can't, I, I can't prove by something outside of this package that this is true. 
Um, but, but what I'm saying is this total package is coherent um, and it, sat it answers the kind of questions you need answering. And there isn't another package that will do that. Um, and if you don't accept this package, then you might as well go away and commit suicide because there isn't another one that's nothing to live for. Um, so uh, why don't you work with this package? Now, there is um, obviously an, an, there is an argument of that kind that philosophical theologians and the like are prepared to put forward much more um, aesthetically satisfying way than I have just put it forward. Um, but, and, and that does indeed presuppose, that is a circular argument, but it's a very big circle. Uh, the way I prefer to, to, uh, to, make, to make the argument is that when I'm starting off with this conversation with a non-Christian, uh, or when I'm trying to think it through for myself, if, I'm try if I were to ask myself, well, um, why do I, is it okay to believe it really? is that when you start um, your, your attempt to discover who Christ is uh, on the basis of which you might believe in him, you're, you're not treating the Gospels as, as Bible, as inspired, infallible word of God or anything. You're simply trusting them as reasonably reliable historical sources for the kind of thing that was going on in the first century AD. Um, and you can make out a, a reasonable case for treating the Gospels that way, in the same way as you would treat the writings of Tacitus or um, Thucydides or some other uh, Roman or Greek uh, writer as reasonable sources for things that were going on in their day. So you can formulate an under, uh, a picture of who Jesus was that doesn't presuppose the um, authority, inspiration, infallibility uh, of the Gospels and be drawn into a faith in Jesus on that basis. Uh, and, and it's then that um, convictions about Scripture and so on follow, but, they didn't, but, but the argument was linear, it wasn't circular. Okay? Okay, number two in the um, Pentateuch list uh, was doctrinal interpretation, which somebody acutely spotted I didn't like very much, um, I liked that. I was pleased that, um, uh, well, I felt slightly guilty that I hadn't, um, somebody said in their posting, for some reason the explanation of doctrinal interpretation was harder for me to grasp than some of the others. Is it the idea that we come to the scripture with our doctrine already formulated and seek to interpret scripture in light of what we already believe to be true theologically? Is it akin to proof texting? Seems like Dr. Golding is not quite as fond of this approach as it can result in silencing the Old Testament and marginalizing the place of Israel in the church's thinking. Too right, brother or sister. You're absolutely right about that. Um, and um, another, somebody else is posting, could you expand some more on the doctrinal approach? The article states, my article, like any other hermeneutical starting point, the framework of Christian doctrine may be allowed to open up questions, but must not be allowed to determine answers, unquote. Where did the answers come from then? I feel like this approach raises so many questions that are just left unsettled. For instance, even if Greek thought did influence the church's emphasis on God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, are these qualities not true or shown to be true through other parts of Scripture? Can the church still hold to these qualities of God and reconcile it with what is written in the Pentateuch? Well, if the, ca if the church can do that, then that's fine. We've got no problem. Uh, my assumption is that the church's emphasis on God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence um, is actually emphasizing something which isn't there in Scripture, um, at least not, or, or at least that, you know, yeah, that isn't there in Scripture. Uh, and that the, uh, a belief that those things must be true is allowed to override uh, things that Scripture does say that suggest that God doesn't um, know everything, not in my, uh, as, I, as, uh, in my, as far as I can see from what Scripture says, not because, not because God couldn't know everything, but because God chooses to live within the context uh, of time with us. Uh, and maybe a reason for that uh, is that God wants to be in real, realistic relationship with us um, and not in a kind of false relationship as it would sort of be if God knew all the things that we were going to do tomorrow. That God could know those things, but chooses not to in order to make the relationship, with more re make, make the relationship more real. That's, my th that's just my theory, just my explanation. Uh, but, the, but the thing that is true, it seems to me, is that 
the scriptures talk a lot about um, that in, in ways that indicate that God doesn't know everything, for instance, is going to happen. Um, and, uh, and likewise, um, uh, that, um, that, that what you mean by God's presence varies a lot. There is a sense in which God is present everywhere. Um, and yet the scriptures all talk, all also talk about God being absent, God going away. Um, and um, if God is, om- and, 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 and okay, God is omnipotent in the sense that God could choose to do anything, but God evidently doesn't choose to do all the things that God could do, otherwise the world wouldn't be in such a mess as it is. Um, and, and so uh, the, the notions of omnipotence, omniscience, uh, and omnipresence, I think, are, would come out of outside of Scripture and are imposed upon Scripture because um, we think that surely it must be true that God knows everything, is, is, omnip- is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. It sounds like one of those things, some of those things that must be true, um, and, and yet Scripture doesn't seem to talk that way. So in the case of those particular examples, the doctrinal convictions with which people come to Scripture cause them to override, obscure the things that are actually there. Now that doesn't always happen. Uh, it, it can be the case um, that uh, the... The, the, the doctrinal convictions that people have enable them to see things there. Um, and that's why doctrinal interpretation is just the same as all these other approaches to interpretation. They are all of them things that, it, that at least in principle, are capable of enabling you to see some things, but also are capable of, of, of um, causing you to miss some things. Let me talk a bit more about the opening chapters of Genesis because I think that illustrates both sides of that. Um, in in light of New Testament teaching, the opening chapters of Genesis uh, have been really, really important for understanding um, the nature of God's relationship with the world, the nature of, of sin, uh, the nature of creation, the nature of, of human wrongdoing, the consequences of sin, and so on. And, and Paul um, utilizes those in an important way in Romans, and they became an important part of Christian doctrine. Now, in light of that, it's hard for us to be able to appreciate the fact that 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 was actually something very new that Paul was doing Uh, within the Old Testament itself and in Jewish thinking uh, for much of the time, it wasn't the case that their whole framework for looking at um, creation, righteousness, sin, the world going wrong, all that, was all shaped by the opening chapters of Genesis. They just weren't influential in in, in that way uh, within Jewish thinking in the way that they became in Christian thinking. Now, uh, what, that, what that means, I think, is that it was the case that, that Paul's Christian theological thinking enabled him to see things and see significance in the early chapters of Genesis that people often hadn't, hadn't that people, generally speaking, hadn't noticed. Um, the doctrinal um, interest that Paul had got opened up the scriptures for him. Now, it was also the case that not, not for Paul, but, but subsequently, um, the, the, the development of that doctrinal interest in those opening chapters also, I think, skewed the, opening of those opening, open, the, the, the interpretation of those opening chapters. Uh, and it's kind of symbolized by the expression, the fall, which doesn't come in the New Testament, um, and which brings with it a doctrinal package that often isn't... Um, Itself, it isn't all there in Genesis. So in the way in which uh, New Testament guys and then the subsequent Christian church and theology came to uh, interpret the opening chapters of Genesis was both positively affected but also negatively skewed by the doctrinal questions that they brought to the text. And that's typical. That's always how it works. Uh, and, uh, and so... The, uh, the trick, the important thing, is to seek to capitalize uh, on the insights that come from your presuppositions of approach and be able to spot where uh, they're making you read things into the text and not see things that are there. There's no formula whereby you can be sure of that. You can only try to do it and then, again, be, be accountable. Uh, we, we, need, we need to be accountable to one another uh, for the way in which we do that. That is, uh, to be to seek to be rigorous ourselves 
uh, in perceiving whether what we've seen in the text in light of our doctrinal question is actually there or whether we're imposing on it um, and to help one another to see whether we're doing that. Um, now, uh, you were just giving an example of that, were you not? When I said there aren't any messianic prophecies <laughs> and you were, I suspect, were thinking about Genesis 3, weren't you? Right, okay. You see, I have the gift of interpretation. I can tell what's going on inside the students' heads. Um, in, um, in Genesis 3.16, or thereabouts, well, obviously, that's, if it's a 3.16, it must be a very significant text about salvation, mustn't it? I thought otherwise it wouldn't be 3.16. The doctrine of 3.16. Oh, no, it's not 3.16, though. Um, it's um, it's 3.15. That must be um, significant, too. Sorry? It's a sign. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, uh, I think it was Irenaeus, uh, who is a second century um, Christian theologian, who saw that, that um, statement about the, the snake, uh, about Eve, uh, about, about Eve um, striking the snake on the head, and the uh, snake uh, biting uh, at, at, at Eve's um, and her offspring's heel, saw that as a messianic prophecy. Um, and uh, Luther described that as the first preaching of the gospel. Now, it ain't nothing of the sort. Now, now, again, if you're doing that thing I was talking about just now, that is, you're, seeking, you're starting from what you know about the gospel and you're using an, an Old Testament text to help you to understand the gospel, and you can say, okay, what's going on is um, Christ is um, stamping down on Satan. Satan is trying to bite at the heel. Satan does bite at the heel of human beings, uh, but, but the, the son of man, the great human being, the, the, the human being with a big H, uh, the, off the offspring of Eve, stamped on the snake's head, made it impossible for him to do that anymore. Now, that's, 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 that's good theology. Um, that, that's uh, a, a use of the Old Testament text like the use that the New Testament makes. The New Testament doesn't, doesn't do that one, but it could have done. Uh, but, but, if you, uh, but, but that's different from saying... But to, to say that that's what Genesis 3 itself teaches... Uh, is to read a doctrinal understanding into a text which, had got, which is making a different point. And in one sense, that, that's harmless because if you are reading true Christian truth there, that's fine. The danger is that if that wasn't what the text originally meant, the text originally meant something that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to people. And so it's a shame if you miss out on what it was that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate. And the, the, the same thing is true about other aspects of those opening chapters of Genesis like for instance when uh, God says let us make human beings in our image so Christians have often said aha the trinity well again in this case in that case Luther said aha the trinity Calvin said nah well Calvin, Calvin didn't actually say nah because he was much nicer than that um, it, th that is uh, and Calvin was a better exegete than Luther Luther was a great theologian but not such a brilliant exegete Calvin was very good as an exegete, and Calvin knew that those guys in Genesis didn't know about the Trinity. So when God said, let us make, the guy who wrote Genesis and the people for whom it was written couldn't have understood it to mean the Trinity. Um, or uh, again, um, what was the other example I was going to, I was thinking, oh yes, the very, the very notion of the snake being Satan. Uh, there's no indication in the text that the snake is Satan. Um, indeed, the emphasis... Um, well, I exaggerate slightly. The, 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 the nearest there is to an indication but in, uh, to anything that would make somebody think that, that Satan was involved here is that when the Old Testament does talk about a power of evil asserted against, asserting itself against God, then it can describe that, that, um, that embodiment of evil as like a dragon or a snake or a serpent, sea serpent. So there are some resonances at the back there 
uh, of this might be a supernatural power of evil. But what Genesis 3 actually says, emphasizes is that how the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. It's just, it's just an animal in the garden. The, the temptation comes to Adam and Eve from inside the creation. Um, and, and so the, the theological point, or the theological implication of the point that Genesis makes, is very different from the theological point that emerges when you say it was Satan who tempted Adam and Eve. Now, it's not that, o- it's not that wa- only one of those two is right. Both of them are right. But if you only understand uh, the serpent equals Satan then uh, on the basis of things the New Testament says, then you miss the particular point that Genesis makes about the way in which temptation can come from inside of creation, inside of, uh, inside of the garden. So in all those examples, uh, there's, there's nothing, the, the doctrinal interpretation doesn't lead you into error, but it does risk you missing the point that the scriptures themselves particularly want to make. Uh, anybody want to come back at me and doctor, about doctrinal um, interpretation? Or about God knowing things? Because that was somebody else wanted to, me to talk some more about God knowing things. Um, hello? I Right, right. There's both. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and so, and that seems to me to be um, what that indicates. That fits in with what I was saying about that God uh, is capable of knowing. God, God is not limited in in, in knowledge um, in a way that God can't overcome. And there clearly are occasions when God uh, has supernatural knowledge about things that are going on, and, and that Jesus has supernatural knowledge about things that are going on or about things that are going to happen. Uh, uh, and, and so I infer, that's, that's the base upon which I infer, that God can know these things, and, but, but often chooses not to, but sometimes chooses to know. Now, uh, you, uh, many of you will know about the debate about open theism, uh, which is what, in a way, what we're talking about. Uh, the, the classical theism says God uh, that omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence are truths about God. Open theism says no, God can't know the future because the future, by definition, can't be known. Now, both of those are philosophical views that people bring to Scripture, uh, and and what they then do is one of those versions of theism takes some things in scripture literally and says some other things you've got to take metaphorically um, and the other view does the same thing but the other way around uh, it takes it, the things that the, the classical theism says must be metaphorical open theism says no you've got to take those really seriously um, and, uh, and and so I would want to argue that you would be unwise to sell your soul either to classical theism or to open theism because both of them are taking parts of the scriptures but then ignoring others. Um, and both of them are thereby falling into this um, the, the trap of what I've here called doctrinal interpretation. Uh, and the challenge is to try to be able to take seriously both kinds um, of statement in scripture uh, and thereby be able to um, utilize the positive aspect to both those doctrinal perspectives without falling into, without losing out by buying into all of them and thereby buying into the way in which they limit the kind of things that Scripture says. Um, Okay. Feminist interpretation. Um, I think there were one or two people think said about that. 
In the last few years, I've come to understand much of the suffering of my own life in terms of teaching from the church that was very anti-female. I bought into it, and it hurt me. I've therefore most recently used the opposite context, that of God being pro-woman, to read the scripture. My context is so different now, and I see many, many passages differently from this slant. I'm looking for God's use of women for his purposes and their importance in his story. I'm looking for how Jesus treated women and his care of them. These are things that so refute the patriarchal and man-dominant Christianity that I was once taught. I appreciate the sympathy with which fuller faculty and students generally address this viewpoint. Though I have some fairly radical anger because of man-centered errors in my own scriptural teaching, I consider myself more of a liberal feminist in that many godly men and women have erred in this. I'm encouraged that there are many now that are changing their interpretations. When interpreting Jesus' life and teaching, there is no question in my mind that he understands women and the cultural position they were, and are still to some extent, forced into. Though he clearly understands, he is not radical about a change. But he does liberally make it clear that women are equal as far as he, God, is concerned. From a feminist viewpoint, one might even be able to see some of Paul's teaching on male-female relationships as more radical than Jesus'. He pulls the rug out from under the husbands of the day in telling them to serve their wives. Unheard of. Was Paul a radical feminist? Well, I'd say that, that Paul and Jesus, um, and Moses for that matter, um, were, were people who, none of them were radical feminists because they, they all made allowances for the culture of their day. Jesus had 12 male disciples. Um, uh, and uh, and so you uh, have to allow, it seems to me, for that the comprom- that compromise uh, to be running through all the scriptures, the, and um, not so much then. Uh, well, I don't know whether whether liberal feminist is the is the right expression, but to see that uh, Moses, uh, Jesus, Paul were all being radical uh, in some of the stances that they took and the actions that they took. But they were always dealing with the fact that uh, you... um, that there is that difference between how things look from the top of the mountain and how things look from the bottom of the mountain. Um, They were were not simply settling for how things were at the bottom of the mountain with patriarchy as it is, with uh, oftentimes the church as it is, but neither were they sitting on the top of the mountain in glorious isolation, describing how things were from God's perspective, without being realistic about how things were in the culture. Um, and, uh, and so they were always, they're, they're inviting us to see the radical implications of the kind of things that they said, but also to recognise um, the, the realism of ways in which uh, allowances have to be made for the way things are in the culture. Um, And we are fortunate to live in a cultural context in which, with regard to that particular issue, it's possible to get get a bit nearer the top of the mountain um, than it was 50 years ago and than it is in in, in some other cultures now. Um, Though, as that quote that I read indicates, uh, there are lots of church contexts in which um, it still feels pretty far down down the bottom of the mountain when you're there. Um, somebody asked me if, if I could uh, speak more sympathetically uh, about the kind of attitudes that ch- church people who aren't um, egalitarian in their attitude take. Um, and the answer is not really. Um, uh, um, it's a bit like uh, that other one about um, the doctrinal interpretation, really. I, I have a hard time uh, arguing convincingly for something that I think is quite wrong. Um, and so you will, would have to uh, go and read the writings of people who uh, think that Scripture teaches subordination of women in order to find the case argue, uh, argued, because I, I, can't, I can't do it. Well, I'll try a tiny bit, but I have, very, I have a very hard time doing it. Um, the argument from the beginning of Genesis, for instance, is that because uh, the woman was created second and created to be a help for the man, therefore that shows um, that she is subordinate to the man. Um, that the two, that man and woman are equal but different, and part of the difference is that uh, the man is designed to exercise authority over the woman. Uh, those are the kind of arguments that you use. Uh, I, I'm having the most, uh, it's, 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 
it's um, almost impossible for me to hold back from saying, those are really stupid arguments. I see, I failed. I was going to do it. And I thought I could do it, but I can't. Um, so you'll have to, you'll have to read um, John Piper or whoever it is uh, in order to find uh, arguments uh, for the idea that God's intention from the beginning uh, was that women should be subordinate, uh, obedient to men, and or that wives should be subordinate to and obedient to husbands. Because um, I can't argue it, because I just can't. Were you about to? No, okay. <laughs> I can try. <laughs> We'd like to hear him try. Come on, then, three sentences. Okay. Um, I suppose that, uh, that, that may provide a, a little bit of an answer to a question that somebody asked about, does Fuller, have, um, does Fuller advocate for a certain hermeneutical stance? Um, and I was going to say no, uh, but maybe that's an exception. Maybe, uh, no, because I guess, I guess that the, the stance that, that Fuller... Hmm. There's a difference between the her- hermeneutical stance and the result of some pieces of interpretation. Yeah. Um, let's take the doctrinal one. There are certain, there are certain aspects of a doctrinal ap- approach to interpreting Scripture that Fuller uh, wants to affirm. That Fuller has a basis of faith um, in which, uh, which reckons that there are certain conclusions about the interpretation of scriptural doctrine that are true and that you need to believe if you're going to be appointed to the faculty and once a year we have to sign um, our adherence to that basis of faith. But the, the content, and likewise, Fuller has a commitment to um, men and women uh, being in the image of God and uh, not, not one not being subordinate uh, to the other uh, and so on. Um, now, in both those cases, the fuller stance is one of uh, commitment to, to the result, to certain results of interpretation, not commitment to a certain method of interpretation. Um, and um, as far as I know, that it would be true that not, none of those. Well, maybe I need to talk about the imperial one. Yeah, I think I probably do, because you probably. You probably have a hard time getting away with an imperial method of interpretation in Fuller. And quite rightly too. After all, it's an interpretation that the British uh, went in for a lot. And an interpretation that um, the US goes in for quite a lot now. Because the US is the great empire. Um, And so when the president, not this one but the other one, uh, wants to justify what some people might call an imperialist war in the Middle East. um, Then you use scripture in order to justify um, the action that you take. So, imperialist interpretation of Scripture is alive and well. Uh, imperialist interpretation of Scripture, imperialist and liberation interpretation are, are obverses of each other. Liberation interpretation is a form of interpretation you take when you are the underdog. You can't do liberation interpretation if you are a middle-class white Anglo guy. Um, you can do liberation interpretation if you belong to a group that isn't characterized by that. If you're black, um, if you're a woman, uh, if you're Latin American, uh, then you can do liberation interpretation because it's, it's, it is interpretation that's done from the underside. Um, and uh, its assumption is that when you are the underside, when you are the marginalized, then you may be able to see things there in scripture because scripture is often written from the position um, of the underside. Um, and you can see that in the story of Israel uh, in, in particular, uh, where Israel starts off as, uh, as the underside. In practice, um, I'm, I, might have, I might have mentioned the story, I'm not sure, about how um, um, black South Africans uh, say, or used to say, I think perhaps still do say, um, that European missionaries came there um, and um, how does it go? And when um, when the missionaries arrived, the missionaries had the Bible, and the um, local people had the land. Uh, the missionaries said, "Let us pray." They prayed, and when uh, the local people opened their eyes, 
um, they had the Bible and the missionaries had the land, the foreigners had the land. Um, the, the people who come to stand for Christian faith come to be the people who are in a position of power. Um, and so that's, that's, that, that's, that's always been, uh, that's been the case, uh, particularly in uh, European and American history. Uh, and so the, the Bible comes to be something which the people in power, the imperialist kind of people, use. And in a sense, we can't help that. We are. I mean, I can't help being a middle-aged white guy in, you know, with a British passport and all that. Um, I mean, it's a very sinful thing to be, but I, I can't help it. I can't repent of it. Um, I, but I have to be aware uh, of the way in which uh, it's easy for me to use Scripture uh, in order to um, support uh, my own position. Um, and again, thereby, uh, to live... Uh, to be open to living in hermeneutical fellowship uh, with Christians who who don't who don't have that background, and who are then able to see things about false ways in which I, in which I interpret Scripture in order to justify my position, um, and ways in which I don't see things in Scripture which I can't see because I'm not in the position of the marginalised. Uh, I can't alter that, uh, but I can at least be prepared to listen to readings of Scripture from the position uh, of people who are marginalised. Um, in the same way, uh, as, as as a man, I, ca I can't have a woman's experience, but I can listen to women uh, who, who uh, look at Scripture in light of their women's experience and thereby be able to discover things there which, um, on my own, I wouldn't be able to discover. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll pick up some of the general um, questions that people raised. Uh, at the end of reading these papers, I was struck at the vast possibility for interpretation of the scripture depending on the reader's biases, past experiences, culture. The question that I have is how can people ever really move away from their own experiences in order to see the text more clearly? Or is interpretation and trying to understand the Bible a mystery that people will work through, work through throughout humanity? Okay, let me tell you a story. Uh, one um, Maundy Thursday, that's the day before Good Friday, right? Um, I had a phone call from a student in the seminary where I used to teach in England uh, who uh, was in a distraught state um, because I knew there were problems in the marriage um, and her husband uh, had been beating her. Uh, and I think I, I, I went there, I went to see, I think they must have separated. He certainly wasn't there. I went to the house and he, he certainly wasn't there. Uh, and um, it was the day before Good Friday and I was thinking about the cross. Therefore, I, I think I'd been to a Monday Thursday service. Um, and, and so I, I started talking to her about um, the passage in 1 Peter where it talks about you submitting to um, ill treatment uh, even when it's undeserved uh, in the way that Christ did. And I deserved to have a kick me in the head, throw me out of the house, didn't I? <laughs> You'd all agree now. Um, even, but unfortunately, maybe, even as I was saying it, I knew that that was rubbish. I knew that must be wrong. Um, and, uh, and, and I came to see both her, the situ her situation and the, the, script the scriptures from a new angle that night. Um, I don't know that, that my visit that night did, did that woman any good, but it had a revolutionary impact upon me. Um, now, th this person asks, 
how can people ever really move away from their own experiences in order to see the text more clearly? Well, that happened to me that night. It, it, it happens. Um, and uh, actually, a similar, similar sort of thing happened when Anne and I went to South Africa in 1993, uh, and that, which is where the first, the first, the first time I got told that story just now, and where I was teaching some seminary students, and we were the, uh, what Deuteronomy had got to say from the perspective of, the, of, um, of those uh, black South Africans uh, who had been the victims of apartheid for N years. Um, and my reading of the Torah could never be the same again because uh, I'd seen it from that, from that other angle. Um, so no, what maybe those two examples show is that uh, well, well, common to those two examples is in neither case was I seeking to get my biblical interpretation corrected. Um, uh, that they were both things that happened to me. Um, and, uh, and so maybe what that's showing is that though, though by, by going to South Africa, I maybe semi-consciously put myself in the way of having my interpretation of Scripture um, broadened. Um, so, so maybe what those examples say is that um, we need, we we can at least be open to things that happen to us, which raise questions and make us look at texts in new ways. Which is to go back to what happened with the New Testament guys. That's that's what happened with them. That is, they were bowled over from by Jesus. And, and that revolutionized the way in which they read the scriptures. Um, and uh, so it happened to them. It happens to us sometimes. It doesn't happen, that, that sort of thing doesn't happen to you um, kind of every day, every week, even every year. But, but, but experiences that happen have a capacity to open you uh, up to scriptures in a new way. So um, don't give up on the idea that it's impossible to move away from your own experience in order to see the text more clearly. Uh, if you like, think of it in terms of that you in relation to Scripture are like your clients in relation to you. What, what you want for them is to be able to see things differently. You're, you're searching for ways in which the, it's possible for them to open their eyes. You can't force them to open their eyes, um, but in some mysterious way, you, you cover that this interaction between you and them should be something that makes it possible for... Uh, the, for the penny to drop, for the, for the light to go on, for them to see something that they haven't seen before. Uh, and, and that does happen in the interpretation of Scripture. So don't be um, uh, gloomy about the possibilities. Um, and uh, that leads me finally to read two of the other postings which relate to that. I think that I've come away from this class with the understanding that there are not necessarily easy answers. I have understood this more clearly since starting higher education. However, I believe that the questions that we pose as a class from the beginning and the questions that arise from our studies are simply not easily answered. As a clinician, I understand the value of process and living in the tension of not knowing. I believe that this class has made me more aware of the process of Scripture and my own interactions with Scripture. That said, the questions that, will, that remain for me will probably remain for the rest of my life. Questions about the role of women, how, to understand the similar, how are we to understand the seemingly challenging role of women in the context of scripture, our own studies, and what the culture demands, and so on. I'm glad to have settled into a comfortable state of unknowing. That's a neat phrase, isn't it? I'm glad to have settled into a comfortable state of unknowing. I've never assumed to know all of the answers, but I'm glad that I did not have to struggle quite as hard with the question of correct interpretation of scripture, what is truth, why don't I know Greek or Hebrew? I think I can settle on the bigger question for myself of how can I relate my understanding of Scripture to another person's regardless of time, space, context in a way that, that facilitates respectful discussion. I don't know how to do this, though. 
and somebody else, I don't really feel like I have pressing questions that I want more help on. I feel like I need more time to let what I've learned sink in and to reflect on it before I can really generate more questions. And I'm comfortable knowing that I have the whole of the rest of my life to learn biblical interpretation. So I don't feel as though I have to have all the answers now. Phew! Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>